Chris and Chris Talk Movies. Hello and welcome back to our podcast. My name is Chris Ferry, and as always, this is my co-host. I am Chris Huddleston. And today we are, I I don't want to just make it like every time I say today we are very excited because I don't know whether you're excited or not, but I'm excited to talk to you. We'll have to we'll have to wait and see. Yet again. Anyway, today we're going to be discussing the 1982? Is that 82. correct? 1982. 1982. Horror film Creepshow. Coming soon. Jolting Tales of Horror. Creepshow. From the author of Carrie, The Shining, and Cujo. And the creator of Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead. You'll scream at ghastly ghouls. Cringe at weird kids. And shiver at the doings of evil doctors. This is going to be extremely painful, Mr. Verrill. Creepshow will grab you, grow on you, and give you the creeps. No, this is going to be an entirely new experience. Creepshow, the most fun you'll ever have being scared. Did you like the voice? Uh, the I like. I loved it. That you was great. That? Okay, great. I liked so, it a lot. And what about the trailer? Um, so we're going to skip a synopsis as per your suggestion before we mm-hmm. started recording because this is an anthology movie, right? Written mm-hmm. and adapted by Stephen King, directed by uh, George Romero. Maybe you've heard of him. Um, and uh, in it's a series of shorts all strung together to form a feature. Yes. Uh, I presume you had seen this before. Yeah, so I saw this sometime. So I would have, I imagine I was 12 or 13 the first time I saw this. was really into it at the time. This hit me, you know, at the right age, I believe. And I've, um, I would say I've seen this five or six times over oh. the years. Yeah, I, I've always liked it. Um, and I'll get into this. It, it hit me, you know, how it is. You see movies at different times in your life or depending on the mood you're in or whatever. And it, it, I think it hit me a little bit differently than the last time I saw it was maybe five years ago or so. I'm a big, I'm a sucker for anthologies. I love, you know, I loved the Twilight Zone and... Hmm. Tales from the Crypt and The Outer Limits and all that kind of stuff. And I've always thought anthology th- films were cool. Now, and we'll get into this, The the uh, I think the problem with anthologies is some stories are better than others. And I, and I, th- I think in my mind, this movie is no exception. So what I thought we would do is just, um, is just start with, uh, you know, just go through each section and kind of talk about them. And, sure. and then at the end, we can kind of say which ones we liked and which we didn't. May whatever. I, may I present a counter offer that we can don't have to accept, but we can discuss. I propose we do that 
but first maybe do just a little broad overview of the whole thing because there are a couple of stylistic elements that Romero carries through as a director throughout. Yes. That I really liked. Okay. And so maybe yeah, go we ahead can and... just talk about it a little bit top down and then we'll punch in to the individual uh, sure. vignettes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. What so, were your thoughts? Yeah, so on that note, um, one of the things that I really liked about this was that it's premised on this sort of horror comics of a certain era. Let me let me uh, interject just one thing here real quick. So my understanding, I'm going from memory on this. I didn't I didn't look this up, but I believe uh, King and Romero wanted to make a Tales from the Crypt movie and they couldn't get the rights mm -hmm. or there was some problem. So they were just like, I eh, will just make up our own thing. So that's, you know, so this is very much, you know, this was them. They would have been guys who grew up in the 50s yes. and 60s. And loved those EC comics. And so this is their take on that. And the style, uh, I'll apologize in advance. If you guys get some wild sound, it's very hot where I'm recording right now. And I record in a little room and the iMac that I record on kicks off a lot of heat. So I have the door and the window open and I have a sound curtain that I have thrown back because I'm, I'm broiling. Um, so if you hear birds chirping or cars passing by, um, uh, that's the way we're, we're doing it from my end. This that's week. how we roll. That's how we roll in the burbs. Um, <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, so, so, so I love that style. Uh, and there's a number of things they do where it's a sort of, um, as they start and end each one, they kind of, they have a frame that's a hand drawn, like comic frame, uh, that's very consistent with that style, uh, horror comic pulp you know comic and there's a uh, very deliberate lighting choices that they make that evoke mm -hmm. um the primary colors of uh colored comic books and i just thought that worked great um the style is pretty consistent throughout they try to bring some humor and a little goofy into it i think to sort of um mixed success um but they do several times chime on some that that kind of like genuine shiver down your spine. Um, what I think of as capital H horror, like there's several places in this film where somebody um, kind of goes mad with fear, right? What they're seeing is mm -hmm. so terrifying that they they start to kind of scream and gibber and and they cackle you know it's like and i i haven't seen a movie in a while where where a character is so afraid that they their mind breaks right the mm -hmm. fear just blows their circuits and they kind of go insane and i that came rushing back to me because i thought oh yeah there was this idea that a diver could go down and see some sort of creature in the deep and would come up and his hair would be snow white, you know, mm -hmm. they yeah. would be able to speak. And, and this idea that horror was somehow almost uh, another dimension that you could, you could pass into this state of that you never really fully came back from mm -hmm. if you got too scared. Um, and and I I love that that's throughout. I think that seems like something that both King and Romero really uh, jived with, and um... and they often do that when when they are that you know uh, they have that horrific horrific look on their face. It's backlit like bright red or bright green or something yes. like that. 
Yes, they they they, they kind of lean into the comic thing. Yes, um, to just under underscore it visually. Um, it is very much an early '80s movie, right? As of course, you would expect it to be. So I, I don't think it's necessarily ahead of its time in any way. But um, you sent me, you texted me a thing about 1982 being like best summer movie, best year. Yeah, that was a uh, that was a a thing that um, the Alamo Draft House did, where they. Uh, I wish I had lived. It was. It would have been the what was it? The 30th anniversary, I guess of 1982. Mm. Cause I think it was 2012 maybe that they did this. And what they did was they showed several of the biggest, you know, the thing poltergeist, uh, Rocky Star Trek to the wrath of Khan. Yeah. Rocky three mad, whichever mad max it is Tron at blade runner. And they showed them, you know, on the weekends that they would have come out. Amazing. So you could go every weekend and see, and I'm just like, you know, cause there was only Blade Runner was 1982. Yeah. Yeah. That's insane. I, how ahead of its time that movie. Oh was. yeah. Yeah. And I think of those movies, the Rocky three was the only one that I actually saw in the theater, um, you know, as a kid, um, cause I would have been, you know, we would have been nine years old, I guess. Um, but yeah. So, but yeah, Creep Show was another, you know, like it wasn't, I don't think a giant blockbuster success, but it made, it made enough money that they made a sequel, you know. I remember it being a theatrical phenomenon, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, video cassettes, do you know when video cassettes like became the kind of mainstream phenomenon that they did? I don't I'd feel say, like it was quite 1982. Yeah, yet. I'd say probably like mid 80s. I want to say like, you know, 85, and 86. And this was the kind know. of, you know, this that really felt like this sort of and and I always just sort of assumed it was because we were kids and I idealized this stuff from our youth. But when you look at it through the lens of the Alamo Draft House thing and and actually doing this podcast, you're like it was a kind of I I use the term cavalierly here but kind of a golden age of cinema because of course where we are now with streaming but movies hadn't come into the home yeah you know i guess if you were really rich and a real film enthusiast you could have a home theater and have a real to real projector but that wasn't that was very rare i would think um and it was the thing of even you know you could rent movies but it was still and I don't know when this really, I don't think this changed until sometime in the nineties, but it was, you couldn't, you could buy the movies, but it was, it was like a hundred dollars to buy, you know, a video, a, you know, a, a pre-recorded videotape, you know, so uh, that was out of most people's budget to actually own movies. Yeah. So whether or not, you know, we would need a film scholar to weigh in on this for us to uh, enlighten us, but whether it was this sort of like, this urge, you know, I'm sure people in the industry could see this and there may have been doubters, but just you remember when Netflix was first getting going and first pioneering streaming, there were people that were saying, well, you know, that's the way of the future. Um, mm -hmm. And then, the, but the bandwidth wasn't really up to it at first. Yeah. But there were other people who were like, look, bandwidth is only going to improve. And this is a hundred percent the way of the future. And they're smart to get in on it early. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think at that time, people could see that, oh, well, you know, 
why were people going to buy a ticket and come out to the movies when they could, you know, for three bucks or whatever it costs, go and, and watch it at home in the privacy of their home and stop and start it and watch it as many times as they want. Um, I don't know whether it was a sort of a, they were feeling the precipice of this coming up or they were saying, we need to, we need to rethink what a feature film is. It's got to be rewatchable and it's got to have real, you know, staying power because we want to get them in the seats opening weekend. Right. Mm -hmm. But we also want them to come back out with their friends and their dates and say, Oh, you haven't seen Rocky three yet. Let's rent it. Right. And, and get the revenue uh, stream, you know, perpetuating itself. I, I'm just completely oh, talking sure, sure. out of thin air here. Cause I don't know anything about it. Uh, I, I'm just speculating, but oh it, yeah, there was something about that summer in particular that was just like, man, that list of movies is crazy. And you look at like a lot of those eighties, uh, you know, eighties movies, summers and it's just like oh my god and the and the thing that was so different was how long the movies would play so you would have just all you just look and it's just like oh there's like eight like incredible movies that were all playing at the same time because they yeah. were in the theater for months you know do you remember um, being a kid because i remember like summertime was movie time oh yeah i was so excited one aspect about summer which of about which i was so excited was all the different movies if there was a new Star Wars coming out, if there was a new Indiana Jones coming out, you know, I had my particular properties that had me hook, line and sinker. But um, just in general, because you could go to the multiplex and have your pick. Yeah, and, and I, and I feel I like would... in my adult life, I would go to the movie theaters and I'd feel lucky if there was something I wanted to see. I wouldn't yeah. just go to the movie theater and be like, what will it be today? <laughs> you mm -hmm. know, I wouldn't go if there wasn't a movie I wanted to see. Back then, I mean, I think I was going to the movies just about every weekend, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and throughout the year. I mean, it wasn't just the summer. But um, I looked up the box office on this and um, it they list the budget as eight million. It made over five its opening weekend and a total total run of twenty one million. In the U.S., so that's a pretty good. You know, yeah. they made almost three times their money. Yeah. So, um, well, let's. Do you do you want to you want to punch into the individual stories? Sure, sure. Yeah. So we start out with so uh, anthologies typically have a wraparound. You know, a story um, that they call a prologue. And what I'm looking at on Wikipedia, but so they we start out with um, so there's a boy. Um, and he has these creep show comics and the boy is actually played by, or the actor, the actor who played the boy is Stephen King's uh, son, Joe Hill, who is a, uh, an author now in his own right. Have you read anything by him? I have not. So he did uh, already, you know, and it's his, his books are very much, they're a lot like his dad's. Um, but he's already had two adapted into films. One was called Horns, which stars. Uh, oh, yeah. Did you see that? No, nope. it's good. I, it's but good I've movie. heard of it. Yeah, it's good. And then the other was a made for AMC, I believe, uh, called Nosferatu, um, which I only watched a little bit of the show. The book is great. I like the book a lot. Um, but anyway, he plays the boy. So he's this boy with these creep show comics and his dad 
is played by um shoot uh what um i can't remember his name either but i can see uh, his face uh tom atkins um and he is this kind of uh you know he's this kind of this crotchety overbearing dad and he doesn't like that his son is reading these these crap why are you reading this crap does he says crap about 25 times which well, I, I he swears too he swears too yeah he's like this is shit but he says he keeps saying crap what this horror crap yeah anyway you, you so. say curmudgeonly but he's abusive yeah he's an abusive he's an abusive and, uh, and the, the wife yeah. is afraid of him the wife is afraid of him i mean he's and, it's a dark family you know it's the, the guy is a tyrant He's a tyrant and she's kind of meek and, uh, uh, you know, he uh, is uh, later on, like he's downstairs with the wife. He's drinking a beer and he's like, you know, I, um, I, I think the wife is something like, you know, don't you think you're a little hard on him? And he's like, no, you know, he can't be reading this horror crap. And I punished him. And he's like, that's what. And he's like, uh, he says, that's why God made fathers, babe. That's why God yeah. made fathers. <laughs> I yeah. think it's a funny line. So anyway. So this sets up, it's like the stories that the kid, um, you know, that the boy is reading. So then we go into the first story, which I believe is just called Father's Day. Yeah, it's called Father's Day. And so that one is about, it's this kind of snooty family at their, yeah, rich family kind of at their estate. And um, the only actor that I recognized in this, and this is one thing that I think really makes this film is there are great actors in almost every segment of this. Yeah. You know, some of them, they were early in their career and one, uh, I don't know what he had done previously, but this is the first thing I ever remember seeing him in is a very young with some hair, Ed Harris. Yeah. Um, and he is actually, he has married into this family, but it's, there's not a whole lot to this one other than they are waiting for their aunt is coming to visit and it's on father's day and the um i guess the 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 i don't know if he was the father or the grandfather's like the patriarch of this family had died well he was the women's father right so he was the women's father sister is inside with her son and daughter and the daughter's husband is ed harris right Right. and then they're expecting her sister who That's comes right. every year on Father's Day to the estate, and it is a grand estate. Yeah, and she's an eccentric, and they're talking about the rumor that, or the rumor she's she's explaining how, um, that she caved in their father's head with a big ashtray or something, right, on Father's Day, and then so she has come every year or whatever. And he was a, there's a I guess maybe there's a little bit of a theme here I don't know with fathers, but he was abusive. You know, he was mean and and yelled and maybe, you know, was abusive to the family. And so the aunt comes and she goes straight to the. So they have there's a cemetery right on their, uh, you know, right on their property. And she goes to the cemetery and she's drunk and, you know, talking about the past and what she did and everything. And he, he comes up out of the grave and kills her um, and then goes on to kill the rest of the people. And let's just pause for a moment because it's a, it's a terrific, uh, it's right out of those comics. Yeah. Um, and Romero with the rising dead, uh, it's, it's the, 
the flesh pulling off the bone and still dressed in the funeral clothes. But so as if the corpse has, has mostly decayed, but isn't dusty yet, so there's still some mm-hmm. wet to it and it has clawed its way up through the right. So the face is mostly gone and you see there's a lot of skull to it and, and skeleton poking through the different, but you see all the different layers. Right. And, um, I feel like that's right out of those comics too. The, 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 and the living dead are, are wet and gooey and gross. <laughs> yeah. And these are effects done by Tom Savini who worked with George Romero a lot. Um, and has worked on a lot of other special effects and he acts, some as well but uh yeah his the effects are are really really great oh and um so i left out this is so the um they when they go to the flashbacks of the father when he was alive um he keeps talking about how it's father's day and he wants his he wants his father's day cake um so basically he comes you know he comes up from the grave and like you said it looks great and just kills them off essentially one by one. And he finally has his cake and he, is it, is it one head or two that he puts on the, you know, cause he goes and he snaps necks and yeah. he rips the head off the, the daughter. Is it just her head on the cake or is yeah. there, are there two yeah, so, heads? So, okay. So, uh, auntie whomever, um, mm-hmm. shows up and he comes out and, and, kills chokes her to get that he kills her and then um the son-in-law goes out looking to see you know where she is he sees the car and he goes he goes out into the and then so he offs him i guess tips the the tombstone over on him and when he uh when he when ed harris walks out there there's a really i really love and this is something that i think is is lacking in horror movies today. Mm-hmm. The spooky graveyard with the fog yes. rolling in and everything. It's really, really atmospheric. Yes. And and I had the thought, you know, it's clearly a film. You know, it's lit and there's lots and lots of smoke machine smoke and there's a, a hooting, you know, mournful, spooky mm-hmm. hooting and Spanish moss. And he's standing there by the the her car they haven't seen or heard of it, but but the car is there and the door is open and there's just nobody there. And he stands and sort of contemplates this epically terrifying graveyard. Mm-hmm. And I had the thought, I would not walk out in there. You know what I mean? No. Like, I'm a grown man and everything else. But I'm like, that's this is one of those horror movies where you yell at the screen, don't go in there. I get a little bit creeped out at night just walking around in my backyard if it's dark, you know. Yeah, well, <laughs> I you wouldn't do, walk around. Yeah, I live out in the country. Yeah, but you know, there's woods behind my house and everything. But and one thing that I was a couple of things that I was thinking watching this segment, um, George Romero is, you know, he's he has beloved films, it, it, you know, particularly the zombie ones, the you know, uh, Dawn of the Dead and Day of the Dead. I never thought um, of him as being a particularly particularly great visual director, but I don't know how the the print of this was that you watched, but the print that I was watching looked fantastic. Yeah, it looked good. And and you know this is a 
pretty, you know, $8 million isn't much of a budget, you know, even in 1982, you know, it wasn't, wouldn't have been super low budget, but not a, not a big budget. But overall, this, I think this movie looks really good and there are some good shots, you know, it's not, it's not pedestrian in any way. I don't, I don't feel. I think at its worst, it feels a little hurried, maybe. Could, yeah, Um, could be. Like they didn't spend a lot of time rehearsing scenes with the actors kind of hurried. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, and I, one of the things, so so the, like the tombstone sort of slides forward in increments and Ed Harris is hard to describe the situation is in, but he's sort of uh, stumbled and fallen into the open grave. Right. So he's lying up, look at, the, at this headstone. And as he's trying to climb out, this big, huge, heavy top of the, of the, you know, monument to this guy's grave sort of slides forward, you know, you hear the sliding stone and it's like, it's going to tip every time he goes to move a little more, it slides further. It's really well done. It doesn't make any sense. Right. But, but it's really well done and it's a, it's scary and effective. And then ultimately the thing uh, topples over him and crushes him. Now that thing was probably made out of styrofoam and cardboard, you know, that, that, that grave, but because of the whole trope of the comic thing, right? And the practical effects are a little, you know, we'll talk about this in particular in a couple of the other stories. The practical effects are very obviously practical. They're not even animatronic. They're masks and mm-hmm. and, and and costumes. But it works. It all yeah. comes together. You're watching a comic book movie that you remember from your youth. The point is that the concept is scary and then the people seeing it, their eyes widen and they scream and the actors are selling it. And I think, and it's also not supposed to, um, it's not supposed to turn you off of be so scary that you never want to go see another movie. It's a, it's right. fun. It's a popcorn it's a fun, movie. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and I think in that regard, the low budget, the parts of it that look low budget, um, all work positively to that effect. Yeah, yeah, I agree, totally. Um, oh, so I'm what? So, sorry. You... so anyway, oh. what we were just saying is, kills him, then goes inside and kills the sister, snaps her head 180 degrees, and I was like, oh, you know, I actually yeah. got a sound out of it. And then uh, the brother and sister go, uh, go in to sort of find out where um, their mom has gone, and. Uh, he opens, I guess he kills a maid in there along there somewhere too. And then he comes out holding his, like a platter with the mother's head on it and sort of some cake and a candle smushed on top of it. And it's the end of it is like a freeze. He's like, I finally got my cake. I got my cake. Of that facing camera presenting to camera and the brother and sister uh, framing it, you know, re- recoiling in horror. Yeah. And it, it sort great. of fades to the drawing, right? This is another motif. It'll either start with the drawing or it'll, at the end, it'll freeze frame and then it'll sort of convert to a comic book frame drawn. And then a page will sort of flip and it'll go to another. I mean, it, I, I thought it was really effective. Yeah, for me, for me as well. So, so the then, next one. It, and then, so the next one is personally what I feel is the weakest um, of the, of the five. If I had a real criticism of this movie, I would say five it's, it's an hour and 45, I believe is what the runtime is. I think five segments is maybe a little too many. And for me personally, 
I wouldn't, you could cut this one. Um, but this one is called The Lonesome Death of Jordy Verrill. This is the most outwardly comedic of, you know, meant to be comedic. Meant to um, be. Yeah, meant to be comedic of the of the segments. It stars Stephen King, which my understanding was that was Romero's idea. I don't know that, you know, King really, you know, Aspired. King realized, yeah, didn't aspire to be an actor, basically, but... But it was Romero's idea. And this is about a guy, this country bumpkin guy who finds a meteorite on his land. And he, um, the meteorite causes this kind of green space moss to grow on him. And it continues to grow and grow and grow to where it takes over his home. And, you know, he's completely covered in it. And so what, what did you think about this one? Yeah, I... I... I understand from a design standpoint, somebody told me once that, you know, odd numbers are inherently more interesting than even numbers. Mm-hmm. So, you know, yeah, five would be more interesting than four. Four sets up a kind of a structure, if you're watching, that 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 we expect some sort of symmetry to them, like the seasons, you know, and right. five lets you lets you break that. I don't know. Anyway, I, I think Stephen King um, is, does well not to have acted anymore. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's terrible. Uh, he's hamming it up. I mean, it's not his fault. I don't no. you know. I just, it doesn't work. He's it's like, he's doing a goofy impression the whole time. Yeah. And it, it keeps you from caring about him at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's playing so cartoonishly stupid. I'm like, Oh, I'm a country Yahoo. That, you know, I don't know. It's alienating. Um, one thing I did like about that one, though, is the effect of the space plant. Yeah. It it has this kind of crazy, what I almost think of as a 60s thing, like in Star Trek. It's a spindly. It doesn't look like Earth plants. It's definitely not little green men, but it's like little green sprouts that grow all over him. It's like grass almost. Mm-hmm. It's spiky and alien looking. And there's a lot of detail shots of the progression of this stuff. It starts at the meteor and it he touches it. So it, it infects him a, a, a right away. And everything he touches in his house, it sort of spreads and grows slowly over the night. But then when he, well, finally, he's so overcome by it that he, it at this point puts a shotgun to where its head used to be and he, he blows his head off. Um, and then we and sort of pull out and we see that this stuff is sort of continuing to grow down the country lane and and it's basically like and they say it's very there's a news he's has his television on and there's a news broadcast saying you know or the forecast it's going to be hot and we're expecting a lot of rain so it's just like okay the whole whole city will be green by yeah and this stuff i guess is going to take just take over the entire world eventually is is the idea so as goofy as it is it end it's a pretty ominous ending and i've always thought you know, the part where, where he shoots himself is, is pretty, it's kind of disturbing. And, the, and that, go it's, ahead. It's one of, uh, uh, it's one of only two that I remember from watching it in my youth. I haven't seen mm. this since then. Um, and I, I remember him blowing his head off and feeling deeply disturbed by that. Let's, and then there's another one we'll get to. I was, I was going to say, we'll get to that one. And I, I, I bet I know which one it is yep. that you remember. So, um, Again, it's not terrible. I mean, it's not like one of the worst things I've ever seen no. in an anthology. I just think all the other ones are 
I, that, yes. To me, this is definitely the weakest. One. I agree. And it is also the only op- apocalyptic one. Right. It's the only one that implies the end of the world. Yeah. Which I think was was also upsetting to me at the time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. So then we get into the third one, which this, I, I kind of go back and forth on on which I would rate the best, but but I watching it this time, this one's maybe my favorite. Uh, the, I, this one I think is really great, and it is called uh, Something to Tide You Over, mm-hmm. and it stars a young Ted Danson. Very I, young. I, very young. I don't know if he, if he would have even been on Cheers yet or not. And um, uh, Leslie Nielsen, which for us um, and, and people younger than us, we know Leslie Nielsen as a comedic actor because it wasn't, you know, it was just a few years after this that he started doing the Naked Gun movies. And then the rest of his career was just slapstick that. stuff. Yeah. But he started out in the 50s, I guess, as a dramatic actor. Yeah. So, you know, older people knew him as a, you know, this this serious actor until, you know, he became, you know, this funny guy. And so this one is about Ted Danson um, is uh, he's having an an affair with Leslie Nielsen's wife. And uh, Leslie Nielsen shows up at Ted Danson's house and he's, you know, it's basically like, I know what's going on, um, you know, blah, blah, blah. And and so he says um, that uh, he plays this recording for him of um, the wife screaming, you know, he's got me, you know, blah, 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 all this kind of stuff. So he's like, you know, you Ted Dance is like, you son of a bitch, you know, I'm going to kill you, you know, blah, blah, blah. So uh, Leslie Nielsen takes him out to the beach where he um, t- he's he's dug a hole and he tells him to get in the hole. And if he doesn't get in the hole, he's going to shoot him. So Ted Danson gets in the hole and he buries him up to his neck. And then he sets up a, and he, he tells him he promises that he will see the, you know, that he's going to get to see the girl. And uh, he says, you know, he says more than one time, I always keep my promises. So he sets up a TV and they never say it explicitly, but I don't know if you get the idea that Ted or not Ted Danson, but Leslie Nielsen works in, you know, he's all into TV and video and everything. So you get the idea that that's his job is, you know, something to do with video production or the, you know, the tech side of it or whatever. And at the time, all of this would have seemed very high tech. Um, but he sets up a TV on the beach and shows him a video of the woman also buried up to her neck and um, that she's somewhere else on the beach. And, uh, you know, basically he's going to, you know, they're going to die. Each the of tide them, is coming. The tide is, yeah, the tide is going to come gonna in. Drown. And, yeah. So you tell the the rest of it. So um so Leslie Nielsen leaves him there with the TV and there's a sequence where Leslie Nielsen basically goes home humming, you know, and sort of mm-hmm. snapping his fingers like tra la 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 this is great. Um and we uh we see Ted Danson the tide is further along wherever she is. So it hasn't quite reached him yet, but he is. And I don't think she can see him. Ted Danson? No, I don't think so. Um, so, but, but he, he sort of, we don't, we are spared watching her actually drown, mm-hmm. which this time I was like, 
they don't show that, do they? Because it's pretty upsetting, the waves rushing in and them sort of going... This, as a kid, really freaked me out. And yeah. still, I mean, watching it as an adult, you just think like, wow, what a horrible way to die that oh, would God. be. Oh, God. And uh, and then so Leslie Nielsen goes back. Eventually, the, the water gets to the television Ted Danson is watching, and it shorts out. And we stick with Ted Danson a, a little bit as the water continues to get higher, and he's spluttering and sputtering. There is a camera. Leslie Nielsen gets home, turns on his uh, – has a – bank of TVs that he's watching this all on. And Ted Zanson turns and looks right in the camera and he's like, I'll get you, you know, mm -hmm. I'll kill you, you know? And, um, and they do that as he's drowning. They do that, uh, that backlit, you know, yeah, effect we again cut with to the bright it, color. And he's now, his, his head now, and this is very stage looking, but he's, yeah, it's just his head above the sand and the water is now a solid, two feet above his head and his hair is sort of drifting and he's holding his breath, trying not to um, inhale. Right. Mm -hmm. And I thought they were going to show that too. I, I remember there was a James Bond movie where we on screen, we see his love interest deliberately drown, mm -hmm. right? They're trapped underwater or something. And he's come down to try and save her and she doesn't want him to, so and they're on like either sides of iron bars that he's trying to get through. And she wants him to save himself. So she kicks back from the bars and screams. And you see on can't you watch her on camera, take that big gulp and then the stunned look on her face. And you just it's a it, you watch a person drown. And that was I, I saw this as an adult. That was so upsetting to me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I thought, oh, my God, we're going to see Ted dancing drown. We don't but they really walk it right up to the line and it becomes clear that both people have drowned in this. So Leslie Nielsen's kind of puttering around the house. And, and a, a two, two things that I want to, uh, I, I want to point out really quickly. So he's puttering around the house. He is wearing this amazing velour yes. like tracksuit. This like green velour tracksuit. That's something that I really love about the seg segment. I also love, um, his house that he lives in and they show Ted Danson's house in the beginning. They both have these just really amazing, you know, late seventies, early eighties homes that I have a lot of nostalgia for that, that look, you know, yeah. the design is really great. Yeah, A lot of rich people on this one, the, the yeah. opening family with the dad and the kid are not, they're just suburban middle-class people, but... And Jordy Verrill is a country, you know, yeah, like a poor country. A but everybody else, yeah, is, is wealthy in this. And palaces and, yeah. Yeah, that's a good... I didn't really think about that, but you're right. So this is the second part that got to me. This this story is the second one. The, the, I had forgotten the whole head drowning. Oh, okay. I, I totally miss... I totally... I guessed wrong. But the... But then he hears something. Who's there? You know, in his own house, and 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 we see some sort of um, shifting shadows in the night. And I thought this sequence uh, was really well done before we see them. So they have come back from the dead, and they're 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 drowned zombies. Um, the husband and wife, or the the wife and and the lover to dance and have come back from the dead, and they come sort of shuffling, covered in seaweed, into his house, and they speak to him, you know, come join us, you know, and he shoots them, 
and you can't kill us. We're already dead, you know? And he's like, and this is one of the scenes where Leslie Nielsen is so horrified that he loses his mind, right? He's like screaming and almost laughing in terror. Um, and it ends with they've buried him and and his head's above his head. He's like, I can hold my breath a long time. Mm-hmm. Right? And he's cackling, you know, yeah. he's he's insane, you know, at this but, point. But that sequence that I remember was that sequence when Leslie Nielsen feels like there's someone in the house and we don't see them. We just see sort of shuffle. We hear sort of shuffling wet sounds and sort of shifting shadows and they protract that when we actually see them. I think the makeup is um, kind of laughable. Unfortunately, Mm -hmm. it's not intended to be, Mm -hmm. but it it doesn't look uh, realistic. It looks like they're wearing rubber Halloween masks. Uh, and, And that, that sort of ruined the, the genuine nature of the terror for me. Cause I think if you're going to show the monster, it better be scary. It was really scary not seeing them. Yeah. Um, but, but that was the one that stayed with me. I'm like, I know I remember Let's see creep show. I, I remember there was um, the, the Stephen King is the guy and, and he blows his head off when he turns into grass. And then there were the water zombies and I couldn't, I couldn't remember any of the rest of the movie. Okay. But that's okay. how that that's how that sequence ends. And this one they play, I would say to me, this is probably the most serious of the five segments. Maybe the next one too is 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 pretty serious as well. And they it's played very straight, kind of until the very end when when they show him uh you know, his head and he's like, I can hold my breath for a long time. Did you think so though? Because I thought, I thought the whole setup of it was kind of Ted Danson was playing it straight, but Leslie Nielsen was playing it. Some of the, some of the dialogue just seemed, you know, very on comic book, maybe. Yeah. Maybe he's a little live action. You're like, really? (laughs) You know, you'd, He'd have dug a pit and the, he would have convinced the guy to get in the pit. And, uh, you know, I, I, I mean, I guess he's kind of, you know, kind of arch, I guess. But it's I just think he's, you know, maybe it's like I said, sort of at the beginning of this segment that, you know, we always knew him as a comedic guy. But I think he is an effective bad guy. I mean, he's pretty sinister in this. You he know? is. I'm just talking um, about the actual words. Like, I, I don't yeah, know. Yeah. I always keep my promises. It's I like just think, I don't know. The, he's monologuing yeah. the whole time. Sure, sure. I don't know. I just, this one plays pretty serious to me until the very end when they, you know, when they kind of fade from the live action to the, um, to the, uh, comic book and they play this goof it's like this you know like goofy music and i was like that does not really tie in i don't know but anyway i i like as i say i like this segment a lot what's next we got to keep so running next, out of time here next is the crate and this one stars another great actor uh hal holbrook yep and it also has adrian barbeau and there's some other recognizable people in this but i'm not sure i don't want to look up their names and so Hal Holbrook is a um, he's a college professor. He has this overbearing, obnoxious wife played by um, Adrian Barbeau. And she just, you know, is like a drunk, basically. And there's a part where they're at a party and she embarrasses him because she's just this crass, you know, horrible person. And 
um, his another professor uh, that he's friends with, uh, a janitor in this um, this one particular hall on the campus, finds this crate. And it's from Antarctica from 1862 or something like that. He has the professor come over. They check it out. And basically what turns out is there's this monster inside of it who kills uh, kills the um, the janitor and kills a uh, a student. And so Hal Holbrook gets this idea that he can lure his horrible wife over there. Right. By... He's too henpecked. He fantasizes actually about killing her. Yeah, there's a great scene where they're at the party and um he's this kind he... of Walter Mitty. Exactly, yeah. There's a great scene where she's standing over by this tree and you know, she's yelling at him and he pulls out like a 357 Magnum and just shoots her and everybody, you know, she dies and everybody golf turns applause. and looks at him and it gives a golf applause and you're like, "What the?" You know, the first time I I I really remember that scene from when I was a kid and I was just like, Oh my God. And then it, you know, he was just fan. He was daydreaming, you know, yeah. it was a fantasy. So he concocts this story that, so the other professor, you, uh, you know, the kind of hint at that he is fooling around with young female students and he concocts this story that the um, the other professor and the wife had, is interested in it as a gossip as because it's a salacious you know right, yeah, yeah thing that and that he has uh, uh, had this female student in the uh, in that hall with him and like you know he kind of roughed her up or something and and now she's she, crawled under the stairs where the crate is and, and she's afraid and won't come out so she's like he's like I know you know you'll know what to do if only you will come over and. You know, and you can, and so uh, you want to continue with what else happens? So she does, and uh, it eats her. And then yeah. they manage to kind of lock it back up. And um, he goes over to play chess with his friend, and they sort of sweep it all under the rug. He, like, he they believe us. We'll leave it locked up under there. Don't worry about it. He goes it. to it. Well, they, they he takes it to a rock quarry and, and drops it. Oh, and dumps it, in. it over. And he's like, Aren't you worried about it? No, I'm sure the thing, you know, it'll drown. But and it's interesting that has been in the crate for over a hundred years. <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting. Like now that the, um, the wife is gone, he seems very confident, you know, um, and relaxed about relaxed, three bloody murders. It, yeah. He didn't do, but I, but he just was kind of like, well, that's a weight lifted off. <laughs> You're like, are you a psychotic? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So what did you think? How, how did you feel about this one? Uh, you know, I get it. Again, I feel like it was very, it was a, it was a very comic booky. you know, the women in this movie are, get pretty short shrift. Uh, yes. It's, they're either the Harridan wife or the, you know, the, the meek is a mouse wife. Um, they're the wife that Ted Danson is having an affair with. Like this whole movie is viewed through the eyes of men and boys. Um, and the men have the mentality of boys. <laughs> so Yeah, the wife is the, the you know, the Ted Danson is having an affair with. Like, you don't even really know her as a person, you know, really. No. I mean, she's just kind of like this object almost. She only gets um, lines after she's dead. Right. <laughs> no. Now, Adrian Barbeau and it's, 
you know. She gives a lot of talking, but it's a very two-dimensional character. Yeah, but I, and, you know, it was a different time then, but I have read comments from her, and she said she loved playing that role. Sure. (laughs) No, she chews the furniture. Yeah. I'm not, my argument is not poor women, is just that, like many comic books, it's a singularly male perspective and adolescent male perspective at that. And I felt like this particular one was written the way, you know, you and I at 12, might have imagined, okay, so there's a college professor, but his wife is, she's a real overbearing, you know, she Mm -hmm. won't let up on him. And and he's got another friend and, you know, he likes the young girls and there's no understanding of how the actual world works. Exactly. Uh, and then and I just felt like particularly in this one, when you put it, it dress it up in live action, particularly with Hal Holbrook, uh, it it was weird to watch. You know, hmm. it, it, I was sort of like, hmm, I, I just some of the dialogue, I'm kind of like, hmm, I can't really get I can't really get with it and then i the part of my brain about the monster i'm like so wait a minute so it's been locked in a, i started asking questions mm-hmm. right? yeah yeah it, it, it does it, not hold up well to scrutiny water right i mean I, that's what so so this was i i didn't like this one as much for for some of those reasons it was just this it was a monster and it seemed to be mm-hmm. quiet unless you got close to or disturbed the crate in which case it kind of popped out and got you and they say that it would like it uh, it killed the I don't remember if it was the janitor or the other guy that it killed, but then they th- they didn't see it happen. They kind of speculated that it uh, afterwards, you know, instead of just going around wreaking havoc, it pulled it. You know, went back in the crate and you know pulled the crate back under the stairs yeah. and went under like there. A hermit crab like, where it was comfortable. Yeah, like a hermit crab or a dog that gets in a you know a a, a crate. Uh, you know, to sleep at night or whatever. So yeah, that was, that I thought was a little, yeah, this one definitely doesn't hold up to, to scrutiny too well. So, so then we get to the final one and this is the one that I thought you were going to say that you remember because, so this one is they're creeping up on you and I have to admit, this is the first time I watched this segment, maybe since I originally saw it because previous viewings of this, I would skip it because I thought this was so gross. I never thought it was scary, but I thought it was so gross uh, that that it always stuck with me from a kid. Now watching it this time, uh, and you know, I didn't like it originally watching it this time. I really liked it. Again, you have another veteran actor in uh, E.G. Marshall um, and he is essentially the only person on screen in this. And, and this one is, he's this really rich guy who lives in this penthouse apartment in New York. And um, there's one point where he says his, um, his apartment, he's paying like $3,000 a month or 3,500 jerk. And he's a jerk. Yeah. And I did, I went on an inflation calculator thing and in today's dollars, that would be like almost $10,000 a month that the guy Right. In today's dollars, he would have a place in Brooklyn. Yeah, yeah, exactly. An an affordable place in Brooklyn. Yeah. So he is this rich jerk guy and he um, he lives his apartment. Everything is white and he would have been very technologically advanced for the time. He has a computer and he has a ticker thing that is showing all the stocks all the time. And he has 
and this he's using speakerphone, which I think works better than speakerphone does in 2021. Mm-hmm. Basically, you know, it's yeah. like flawless. And he's just talking to uh, employees and, you know, he wants them to do in it. You know, it's like it's late at night and it's like, hey, if you don't do this, you know, in the next half hour, you're going to get fired or whatever. And um, one of his I guess it was one of his competitors kills himself and um, the wife the now widow of the guy calls him and is saying how terrible he is. And he just laughs and, you know, he thinks it's great that the guy's dead and, you know, he's really mean to the wife. Uh, He has this phobia of, uh, I don't know if it's just bugs in general, but roaches and they're, and you're never quite sure. I don't think watching it, if the roaches are real or he's just insane. Mm. Um, But, all throughout, he's, you know, he's calling these different people and checking up on his finances and making sure that his employees are, you know, following his every whim. And he's also dealing with roaches in his apartment. And as it goes on, there are more and more and more roaches. And eventually the roaches just devour him. Yeah. Um, so what did you think of this one? Uh, um. I, I, I didn't like it as much. I mean, I think in terms of all five of them and the sort of general color scheme to kind of end on a white one, it's more or less black and white with brown roaches, um, Mm -hmm. was visually striking and probably the right one to end with. Uh, I don't particularly like roaches either. I thought there's, there's, I don't find them scary. It's just gross. You know, I'm interested in your theory that um, that he might have just been insane because it sort of it ends with a shot of him just kind of lying dead on the floor. Mm -hmm. And then there's lumps and stuff under his flesh and roaches sort of explode out of him. They burst through his skin and and out of his mouth and his chest. And that made me think that it had somehow been all in his mind and then it, and then sort of ended. So in his mind, the roaches were coming from the outside and, and he was overwhelmed by them. And, but then it kind of cuts like, well, the roaches, the roach nest was within him all along and it, it consumed him. Right. Mm-hmm. Cause by, in the end we see this sort of, glass fourth wall where there's literally three or four feet of roaches in the room and a vague shape of where his body is in the middle. And, you know, I mean, it's a pretty straightforward little moral. It's like you reap what you sow or Mm -hmm. something like that. Um, And as far as, you know, it maybe being all in his head, there's a maintenance guy who, who comes to the door a couple of times and he makes some kind of comment about, oh, you've got the roaches again. You know, like he doesn't believe it. And even E.G. Marshall makes some kind of comment about, well, you just think I'm crazy, you know, that it's all in my head. And and uh, and it, you know, it seems implausible that there would be this many roaches in this, it, it's a this luxury apartment. It's a supernatural yeah. amount of, of roaches. But this is the fifth in a sequence of of five supernatural stories. Mm-hmm. So and the effect is. It, it in no way looks real of just, you know, th- all of these roaches busting out of him, but it it's was still, still gross. It's still really gross. Yeah. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it, it doesn't look real, but it's effective. 
Um, so I just, like I say, it had been a long time since I had seen this particular segment because I, I had remembered not liking it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just felt, uh, E.G. Marshall's again, he's chewing the scenery and, uh, he just seems like he's having a really great time, you know, with this, uh, yes. with this role. And, and I just, um, I just really liked his performance in this one. So I, yeah. uh, this was, you know, probably going into this, I would probably say, Oh, that's my least favorite one. And, and I wound up liking it quite a bit. So, so then we get, we come back to the wraparound and we have, um, these garbage, garbage men, one played by Tom Savini, who I mentioned earlier is the effects guy. And the, uh, they find this creep show comic, you know, they go to the house of the the boy and Tom Atkins and they find this creep show comic. And the one guy's looking through it and he's like, Oh, I love these comics. And, uh, he's flipping through and he's like, Oh, here's a, Oh, you can always order, you know, these cool things like the x-ray specs. And Tom Savini says, Oh, all that does is it just makes your eyes black. And the other guy says, uh, Oh, there's a voodoo doll in, in there. And they say, Oh, somebody's already cut it out to order it. And that was something that I got to thinking about uh, while I was watching it. That would be, you know, younger people. This would be foreign to them, but we've all been spoiled by Amazon. But, uh, you know, back then, I don't know if you ever ordered anything out of the back of a comic book or out of the back of a magazine. But it's so funny to think now that it was always like, wait, four to six weeks or six to eight weeks for delivery or whatever. And it would always be about time you'd completely forgotten about it would be when it would show up in the mail, you know? Yeah. But, but anyway, so we cut to inside the house and the boy has the voodoo doll, which he's stabbing pins in it. And Tom Atkins is in the kitchen and, you know, he's having all this neck pain and, you know, and, uh, uh, because the, you know, the son is using the voodoo doll on him. And that's, I think they cut to back to comic book then and it goes animated and, and then that's the end of the film. Yeah. So, yeah. And it's a, it's a, it's a, I think it's just to summarize, cause we're really running a little long here. Um, I'd recommend it. I think if you're in, certainly if you're into the time period and you like Stephen King and Romero and uh, you want a fun popcorn horror movie from the eighties, then, you know, like I would recommend Fright Night, I would likewise recommend this one. Um, and I, to be honest, going in, I wasn't sure how you were going to feel about this one because I was watching it. And I, I just, wasn't either. I <laughs> yeah. Um, but it was more fun than it was um, like fun horror, campy horror. As long as it's fun. I don't like that torture porn stuff where it's just yeah. like, you know, we, we this is a protracted sequence of the sadistic delight of murdering people and watching them suffer. I'm like, I don't need to see that. And, you know, I don't, I don't get anything out of that. This is I feel like there was so much there was so much of this kind of stuff and like Fright Night um, in the 80s. And I think it's missing now. I think, you know, the 80s was the pre irony era, basically. Now we're in, um, you know, irony and meta and all that kind of stuff, which there's nothing wrong with that. But I think when you know today when they do movies and they maybe try to pay homage to this kind of thing 
Um, you know, they were clearly having fun with this. Yes. But I think you have kind of now it's either like we're going to do we're going to try to make it really serious. And like you said, kind of, the you know, sometimes the torture porn stuff or we're going to do a horror comedy, which this is not a horror comedy. You know, this isn't this isn't Shaun of the Dead. Um, That's right. This is it's fun, but they're still trying to make it, you know, kind of spooky and creepy, which it has some of that. And I just don't know that there's anyone creepy. There, yeah, it's creep, creep show. show. It's yeah. it's literally supposed to be shivers down your spine and a couple of jump scares, but uh, a little wink and a nod. You know, I just but don't. Still fun. Still yeah, a popcorn still fun. movie. Not like oh, I don't. I lost my appetite. You know, that's so upsetting. And or I don't know. We're not going to go. We're not going to leave the movie and go make out. You know, because mm-hmm. we're the movie because the movie was so upsetting. You know, yeah, yeah. It, it, it was it was designed to be fun ultimately and sell a bunch of tickets. And some people might have taken their kids to this, although I don't I don't feel like it was maybe older kids. You know, maybe teenagers. But yeah, I don't. What was it? Yeah, we were too young. It was R. You know, because yeah. there's some there's some there's some there might be some f words in this. There's some profanity. There's no nudity or no sex right. at all. Um, it's funny cause I think in the, in the thing it said rated R for, you know, uh, violence, disturbing images, uh, sexual situations and foul language. And I thought to myself, I don't know what sexual the sexual situation is. Yeah. Even then I was like, I don't remember any of that. And there wasn't, there's not even, um, a kiss or anything. Right. You know? it, not even the, not even the, a lot of horror tropes have the sort of at the beach or the girl in the bikini or the, re- even, or the requisite boobs, you know? Yeah. 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 Oh. Or the jaws element of like, it makes it scarier if there's a sort of a tinge of sexuality to, there was nothing. It was very chaste in that regard. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. But it's, it's, you know, there might be something that's just not coming to mind to me, but there's, it's hard for me to really, uh, come up with anyone doing this kind of thing today. Right. I, the only thing that I can think of is that somewhat close would have been the, the evil dead TV show. Right. Um, but that was Sam Raimi and that, Bruce Campbell who that's did. That's right. Who were just reprising they, what, what they did before. Yeah. And I feel like that was more you know full on comedy than than what this is yeah that's um, so and there's a lot of splat to it but it is it is i mean that's kind of its own brand like those are you talking guys, about evil dead yeah yeah those, those that, two guys were so simpatico on what they thought was fun and some of the gross stuff is genuinely gross yeah uh, you know it, it is uh there's dismemberment and there's I, there's one sequence I remember where a guy gets his uh, the evil because the car has become evil and it the wheel comes down on his head and they have the mannequin that is supposed to be the guy and it just shows the wheel <laughs> grinding mm-hmm. his, his whole head in and you're just like oh my god but it all the tone is always like this yeehaw I've got a chainsaw for an arm <laughs> yeah and you know with creep show. There's not even really a huge amount of gore in this. You know, no. it's it's not super. This is definitely, and you know, I was I was the age where, you know, like I said, I was probably 12 or, th- you know, I probably saw this in like 85 or something like that. 85, 86. So I was probably 12 or 13 years old. And I've always thought of this as 
this was kind of like starter horror to me. You know, it's not, it's spooky enough for a kid, but it's not, you know, it's not going to just totally terrorize you. Again, I never know with any of this stuff, how this would play on young audiences, if they would just think this was really silly or, or what, but I don't know. Um, you know, it is a different world and I, I don't want to get too dark in the conversation because we've had so mm-hmm. much fun with it. But I, I think of um, there there was a while where you could remember there was a journalist that um, terrorists uh, beheaded him and they, they put mm-hmm. it on camera and that got released and it was going around the Internet. I did not watch it because I have no. No, interest in I don't want to see it. any of that stuff. I remember Howard Stern had somebody on one time and I'm not a big Howard Stern listener, but I happened to hear him talking about this and somebody's like, Oh yeah, did you see that? And he's like, I, I did see it. And I genuinely wish that I hadn't. And he yeah. said, I, I say this to you. I'm not joking. If you're listening and you haven't seen it, you've been thinking about it. Don't do yourself a favor and don't, there's nothing entertaining about it. It's horrible. And I'll, I, I'll never unsee it. And I wish I could. Mm-hmm. And it was the most serious I've ever heard Howard Stern be. Uh, I mean, he he didn't turn it into a public service, but he was just like, I, I saw it and I wish I hadn't seen it. And yet we live in an era where in some ways the the, the, innocent, the veil of innocence has been pulled up because anybody can record anything and you can yeah. dump anything out into the Internet. And as we know, these filters that are supposed to catch all this stuff have gotten better and catch more and more of it. Uh, but still don't catch everything like something will get onto YouTube and people will see it before it gets flagged and taken down, you know, and there's a lot Mm -hmm. of people out there that are trying to trying to just get inappropriate stuff out there. I've got kids who, who kick around on YouTube and it concerns me. Sure. Well, one thing with horror, they, they always say is that horror often the, the better horror is reflecting what's going on at the time. Um, and is, you know, in a veiled way commenting on what's going on at the time. And even, you know, Romero did this, um, particularly with, and it's, you know, it's not, it's not like it's not pretty obvious, but like Dawn of the Dead, you know, was his comment on consumerism, you know, it's kind of, you know, malls were just starting to be a thing. Um, and they say that, you know, in the seventies, um, you know, you went from the sixties where it was a lot of the giant, um, you know, giant ants atomic, or whatever. Right. Yeah. It was atomic stuff because everybody was afraid of, you know, nuclear war and, and all that. And then you got into the seventies where everybody had seen, um, uh, you know, Vietnam coverage every night right. on, on TV and, and the movies, the horror movies got to be more graphic and more violent, right. you know, as a result. And cathartic of, of real deep-seated anxiety and people lost sons, right? I mean, yeah, it, it was a meat grinder, that war. And it tore the, virtually tore the country in half. And I think yeah. by the 80s, um, you know, however you feel about Reagan in retrospect... Uh, I, I feel like in the early eighties, there was, you know, this disco, there was this sense of like, whew, you know, that's over, that's ended now. And we're getting, you know, a new chapter and let's have some fun. And Coke was starting to be a big thing. Yeah, and it yeah. was like, there was a hedonism that was coming up, but in these summer blockbusters, I feel like that's there. It wasn't Scarface yet. Right. In the, mm-hmm. in these movies, but these summer blockbuster movies had a kind of a wild abandon and joy to them that I think 
resonates still when I see this stuff. It's part of why, you know, we do, we gravitate to this time period is, is that's what we remember as kids. The movies were this great escape. And I think we were lucky in a way. And, you know, I don't, I don't think kids, you know, they don't know a lot of the bad stuff, maybe kids now, but you know, previous generations don't know a lot of the bad stuff that that's going on in the world. But I think we lived in a pretty unique time because things were pretty peaceful. You know, we had the cold war, but kind of nothing really happened with that. So it, it seemed like we grew up in an era that was very safe. And, you know, now you have, it seemed like it, it seemed like it. I mean, it, you know, but, but now maybe when you have, you know, kids that grew up with nine eleven and and those kind of things, and maybe a pandemic and a pandemic, I maybe mean, this kind of stuff doesn't doesn't work anymore on those people. I don't way, know. Yeah, maybe not. But for me personally, this is the kind of horror that I I would like to see more of because it seems like if it's made now, it's a lower budget than what this was. You know, they're doing it on like a micro budget, and, right. and it just you know, they don't have the effects or the acting isn't as good. I don't know. It, it, it's, Everything's uh, that's digital. just my view. Right? Yeah. Like, so it's, it's a, it's a monster that comes out of a, you know, comes out of your phone or it's a te- literally a text virus. And I just feel like th- because we're all shooting and we have all these things in our pockets, I kind of yearn for, like if I ever get the opportunity to make another feature film and I find collaborators into it, I would love to do a good old fashioned ghost story. Yeah. Because you could do so much with practical effects. And I don't know if we've ever talked about the others or not, but there's so much of that in the, the Nicole Kidman uh, vehicle, the others. It's just a great old ghost story and it's empty rooms and negative spaces. And it's not a bunch of CGI jump scare stuff. It is uh, it's a bone numbing, you know, keep shooting glances over your shoulder, you know, creeper it's just really mm-hmm. great and i i love that i love practical stuff i love using the camera tricks you know and just the shot of the person being like hello who who's there you know and no answer and it's just a long lingering shot of the person getting more and more concerned i'm getting it's working me up just imagining it um and everything has got to be super fast paced transformer horror you know i don't know yeah, and that's another thing with with this movie with Creep Show. Um it's not super fast paced, but I never there was never a time in it where I really felt bored. No. Did you? I mean, no, no. It's I mean, it's it, it's another one. Sometimes these movies end up being too long <laughs> and you think it didn't need to be that long. Yeah. But an hour 45, it's modest. You know, it well, probably, they could probably train, trim 15 minutes off of it if they wanted to. What would you say was what segment do you think you like the best? Hmm. The one that kind of keeps I, I am torn between Father's Day and uh something to turn to Some, tide you to over. Something to tide you over, yeah. Um just tide, because get it. <laughs> yeah, I got it. <laughs> just because I think that uh it, it's a relatively simple concept that doesn't merit too much explanation, mm-hmm. right? I didn't, I wasn't like, well, how did they come back from the dead? It doesn't, that's not the point. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. They're not like, you know, doing the stock market. They came back to kill him. And it's the same thing. I was like, well, why did the old guy come back or how? And mm, there's no Ouija board. There's no explanation. He just does. And that is the whole, that's scary. So they're just kind of one punchline gags. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think something that, 
that makes these really effective as well that Romero was very smart with uh, and, and King is they had a limited budget um, and all of these stories are small. They're all, you know, self-contained with just a few actors and a few locations. Um, and I think that works really well. Yeah, I do too. I, I would recommend it. I, I think we started to sort of wrap it up and then now 10 yeah. minutes later, we're, <laughs> we should wrap yeah. it up. But uh, Absol- yeah, I definitely would recommend it. Yeah, it's got a 6.9 on IMDb. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I'd go a little higher. I'd say like a seven and a half. Yeah, um, definitely give it a seven. Yeah, I don't know yeah. why I'm starting to hem and haw over half a point, but, but it, it's up there as long as you know, do I think it's the greatest film of, no. Do I think it was the greatest film of the summer of 1982? No, no. <laughs> but, no. but for what it is, it is, um, it's very pleasingly delivers on what you, on sort of expectations. When you sit down and you and start to see the title credits, you're like, oh, okay. And then I think it follows through on that throughout and it stays consistent. And if it's the kind of thing that after listening to us talk about it, or maybe you saw it and you haven't seen it in a while. Yeah, I had fun watching it again. I would say definitely anybody who, if you like 80s horror and you've never seen this one, it's, you know, you like fun 80s horror, this one's good. If you're just kind of, maybe if you're just getting into 80s horror and you've seen some of the, you know, you've seen Nightmare on Elm Street or, you know, the Halloween movies, these kind of huge ones, this is a little bit, you know, smaller. Um, I would definitely recommend it. Yeah. And it's not, and it's, you know, we've talked about before, you're not a, a huge horror fan. And people who, you know, get this isn't The Exorcist. You know, this is this right. is not a super scary movie. This is more right. fun. It's not spooky. Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, um, so we hadn't really talked about anything for next week. I did have one thought, um, and I thought I'd run this by you. And, and you know, if you have something else, um, you know, throw it out there. But I was listening to another podcast um, on my way home from work today. And it was, I was listening to like one of their back episodes from several years ago. And in it, they mentioned, um, the movie virus from sometime in the nineties starring Jamie Lee Curtis, which I have never seen. They were talking about how, right. I don't know. I, I I don't, I just know Jamie Lee Curtis was in it. Is it okay? Is it Donald is that, Sutherland? Is it the, am I thinking of the right one? Uh, let me just talk and I'll look here. It's a sort of a computer virus quickly. and it gets on a ship and it sort of builds uh, monsters, but it uses the crew as part of so that you end up with these sort of cyborg monstrosities. Donald Sutherland, yeah. So yeah. you probably, I have never seen it. No, no, I don't think I've ever, I've seen clips of it because it comes up sometimes then when I fall down an internet hole, but I don't think here's I've ever a, seen the thing start to finish. Here's the synopsis. Uh, after... Outrunning a typhoon at sea, a strong-willed tugboat navigator (laughs) and her crew discover a high-tech alien life form that's taken control of a Russian research vessel and aims to destroy on a massive scale. So I've never seen it. And they said, Jamie Lee Curtis said she was doing an interview for one of the Halloween movies. And I guess this came out like around the same time. And she said it was the worst movie that had ever been made. <laughs> so has I'm, William Baldwin in it as well. I'm down. Okay. Uh, and we can go that route. The other, okay. the only one that's been dancing around in my mind, and I'm not, I'm not making a hard sell for this, but when I watched that, um, 82 was Tron. 
Okay. And I know you had said you weren't that into Tron. Have you seen it since you were a kid and first? No, started? no. I, I watched the um I watched, you know, the the sequel a few years ago, sure. which I thought was really good. It was visually um, stunning for sure. Yeah. Uh I don't and, agree with you that it was really good, but it was really yeah, stunning. I mean, I don't remember a lot about the story, but I but I definitely it definitely looked good. Um but yeah, for whatever it's, it, I always felt like it's one of those movies that I should have liked, but I, you know, I watched it as a kid. Sure. Probably on home video. And then I know somewhere along the way, still, I'm sure this was in the eighties, you know, I caught bits and pieces of it on TV and it just never, I loved the game. Um, you know, the video game, the arcade game. Why don't, uh, I don't want to make you watch anything you don't want no. to watch. Why don't we Why don't we leave it as a cliffhanger for this time? And you and I will decide okay. offline. And for our listeners here, it'll be something of a surprise, like the olden days when we didn't announce it. Um, That's right. So, but we co- we'll commit to either watch Virus or Tron. And um, I think we, we ought to wrap it up because my sure. counter here is well over an hour. Um, okay. But but as usual, Chris and Chris talk movies at gmail.com. If you got comments, uh, we'll hit us up on the socials, like, subscribe, um, all of that good, fun stuff. And we really appreciate you listening. You have anything to add, Chris? Nope. Yeah. Thanks for listening and uh, watch Creep Show if you haven't seen it. Yeah. And we will talk to you next week. <laughs>